welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. It's definitely a complicated set of cases this week. Join me as we go down the rabbit hole of statutes, deference, and ambiguity. And again, check out my special episode interview with Jed Kurzban if you haven't already. My talks with Jed have definitely helped me become a better lawyer over the years. Also, the podcast congratulates newly minted Ninth Circuit Chief Judge, the Honorable Mary H. Mergia. On to the cases. All right, here we go. First is Omeda Oriana v. Garland, published by the Sixth Circuit on November 29th, 2021. This case is about gender-based asylum claims and domestic abuse. Ms. Omeda Oriana is from El Salvador and entered the United States in February 2016 when matter of ARCG was good law. She fled El Salvador because her domestic partner, Oscar, beat her savagely and repeatedly, raped her regularly, locked her up, and called her terrible names for months. Rather than continue being horribly abused, Ms. Zometa Oriana left El Salvador at her parents' urging. When Oscar learned, he said he'd kill her if he ever saw her again. In removal proceedings, Ms. Zometa Oriana brought claims for asylum and related relief, quote, based both on her anti-machismo political opinion and her membership in a particular social group, defined as Salvadoran women of childbearing age in domestic partnerships, end quote but the immigration judge determined that the evidence didn't show that Ms. Omeda Oriana actually had the political opinion. And by the time of the individual hearing, Attorney General Sessions had vacated matter of ARCG in matter of AB, thereby severely undermining the viability of Ms. Omeda Oriana's particular social group. For this and some other reasons, the IJ denied her relief and protection, and the BIA affirmed. The Sixth Circuit remanded, but not before affirming some of the BIA and IJ's decision. For example, the Sixth Circuit held that the BIA did in fact conduct a legally sufficient analysis and agreed that the record didn't support a finding that Oscar harmed Ms. Ometa Oriana on account of any anti-machismo political opinion that she might have held. 
However, the Sixth Circuit held that the BIA did err when it found that Oscar harmed Ms. Omeda Oriana because, quote, she was the domestic partner of her abuser and not because of her particular social group, end quote. And that, as listeners likely know, is likely because Attorney General Garland vacated the ABs, ABI, in June 2021, making matter of ARCG good law and particular social groups like this cognizable. On remand, the BIA should be cognizant of the United States' quote, obligations under international law to extend refuge to those who qualify for such relief, end quote, even if Ms. Samantha Oriana may have difficulty, quote, exactly delineating a convoluted legal concept, end quote, such as particular social group. Additionally, it appears that the Sixth Circuit believes that the IJ and BIA erred in determining whether the Salvadoran government was able or willing to control Oscar as asylum law requires, because, quote, a government's specific response to a petitioner's persecution cannot be the only relevant evidence an immigration judge considers, end quote. Rather, IJs must consider general country conditions as well. Accordingly, the IJ here appears to have erred in relying, quote, exclusively on the fact that Ms. Omeda Oriana did not report the incidents regarding her abuse to the police department, end quote. This was error, where the general country conditions show the, quote, inadequacy of state protection in El Salvador, end quote. Finally, the IJ erred when he stated, without citing any evidence or record support, that, quote, there is no reason this man would be able to locate her, even though El Salvador is such a small country, if she simply relocates elsewhere and does not use a phone and does not tell him where she is, end quote. That was mere speculation and constituted error by the IJ. Case remanded. Congratulations, Alicia Jeanine Trish, for petitioner. And thanks, Attorney General Garland. Two more helpful observations for non-citizens. The Sixth Circuit determined that this case was not like Rodriguez-Tornes v. Garland, a very good decision for non-citizens published by the Ninth Circuit and discussed on episode 50 of the podcast, because there, and unlike here, and quote, while the Ninth Circuit there noted that feminism is a widely accepted political opinion, it was clear from the record that the petitioner's mistreatment was because she sought an equal perch in social hierarchy, end quote. Not so with Ms. Omeda Oriana's case. Quote, Therefore, unlike in Rodriguez-Torres, it is not clear whether Ms. Omeda Oriana ever asserted her rights as a woman in a way that would demonstrate a nexus between her political opinion and her persecution, end quote. So that's why the political opinion arguments failed in this case. But it's pretty clear to me that if the facts existed, the Sixth Circuit would have issued a feminism decision similar to Rodriguez-Torres. Finally, a bit off-topic, but a nice quote for Sixth Circuit practitioners. Referring to a different case, the court states that, quote, in the context of the BIA's denial of a motion to remand, we found that the BIA's five-sentence, single-paragraph rationale was wholly inadequate, end quote. Similar when it comes to motions to reopen, a rationale equating to merely a, quote, bald statement that the new evidence was insufficient, end quote, is not, in fact, sufficient. Have you received such denials of your motions? And that is Omeda Oriana v. Garland. Next is Pugin v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on November 30th, 2021. 
Big old complicated aggravated felony decision out of the Fourth Circuit, going in-depth on Chevron deference and statutory interpretation. Chief Judge Gregory dissented. Thought I'd get through it near the top of the episode. I'll do my best to summarize it expeditiously. Mr. Pugin is from Mauritius and was admitted to the United States as a lawful permanent resident in 1985. But he didn't become a U.S. citizen, and 30 years later, in 2014, he was convicted of being an accessory after the fact to a felony under Virginia Code Section 18.2-19. Now, his conviction is itself a misdemeanor, but he was sentenced to a term of imprisonment of at least one year. Whether his conviction makes him removable turns, in this case, on whether it matches the definition of an aggravated felony. And not all aggravated felonies have a requirement that an individual be sentenced to a term of imprisonment of at least one year. But the only relevant aggravated felony that might match his conviction here does. That aggravated felony is INA Section 101A43S, meaning that if Mr. Pugin's conviction matches the statutory definition of an aggravated felony at INA Section 101A43S, it'll make him removable, because he's already got the one-year term of imprisonment. The IJ and the BIA held that it did match, and so ordered Mr. Pugin removed. The Fourth Circuit affirmed. Now I find Section 101A43S to be one of the more complex aggravated felonies, as does, I believe, the BIA. The BIA last addressed the beast in its 2018 decision, Matter of Valenzuela Garrardo II, and the podcast, and therefore the circuits, last addressed it in Valenzuela Garrardo v. Barr, published by the Ninth Circuit in August of 2020 and discussed on episode 15 on the podcast. And if you're listening closely, you heard it right. The Ninth Circuit has already reviewed the BIA's decision in Valenzuela Garrado II on direct petition for review, and as discussed on episode 15, it vacated the BIA's decision. But here, we're in the Fourth Circuit. It's going to be a fun one. INA Section 101A43S defines as an aggravated felony, quote, an offense relating to obstruction of justice, perjury, or subornation of perjury, or bribery of a witness, for which the term of imprisonment is at least one year, end quote. In matter of Valenzuela Garrado II, the BIA defined, quote, offenses relating to obstruction of justice, end quote, as requiring, one, an affirmative and intentional attempt, two, that is motivated by a specific intent, to three, interfere either in an investigation or a proceeding that is ongoing, pending, or reasonably foreseeable by the defendant, or in another's punishment resulting from a completed proceeding. As just discussed, the Ninth Circuit didn't like that definition, and so vacated Matter of Valenzuela Garrado II in episode 15 of the podcast. But here, and unlike the Ninth Circuit, the Fourth Circuit deferred to the BIA's definition of a Section 101A43S aggravated felony, applying the Supreme Court's Chevron decision. Yes, let's get that first gong out of the way, shall we? First, the Fourth Circuit rejected Mr. Pugin's attorney's very smart arguments that Chevron deference should never apply to criminal-type statutes. Even if the attorneys are right that a court should never defer to an agency's interpretation of a criminal statute, and the debate is raging, apparently, the INA is a civil statute, albeit one where, as many judges have mentioned, the consequences are akin to a death sentence. The fact that an IJ's decision may eventually be relied upon in criminal proceedings should Mr. Pugin re-enter the U.S. illegally and be prosecuted has no bearing on whether Chevron deference is appropriate 
to the BIA's interpretation of the statute. Love the argument, though. Use the extensive analysis in this decision as a guide to make similar arguments in other circuits. The Fourth Circuit also conducted a substantial analysis and found the aggravated felony statute ambiguous, and the BIA's definition of it in Valenzuela Guerrero II to be reasonable, meaning that the Fourth Circuit deferred to the BIA's definition under Chevron. On ambiguity, the dispute between the majority and the dissent in this decision, and now between the Fourth Circuit and the Third, Ninth, and maybe Seventh Circuits, seems to be largely about whether the phrase relating to obstruction of justice requires an existing proceeding, or can include, as the BIA held in Matter of Valenzuela Guerrero II, merely a, quote, foreseeable proceeding, end quote. The majority cited and deferred to the BIA. More on that later, though. And the Fourth Circuit, of course, found that definition to be reasonable, as Chevron requires. For example, in Valenzuela Guerrero II, the BIA relied on the meaning of obstruction of justice used by many states and the federal government when Congress passed the aggravated felony statute, and that's a reasonable thing for the BIA to do. So, having decided to use the BIA's definition of Section 101A43S, the Fourth Circuit held that the accessory after the fact to a felony statute under Virginia Code Section 18.2-19 is a categorical match to the aggravated felony. This dispute came down mainly to mens rea, or mental state. See, under the BIA's definition, a state statute only matches the aggravated felony definition if it requires, quote, a specific intent to interfere, end quote. Mr. Pugin argued that his crime lacked that specific intent. But going way back to a Virginia Supreme Court decision from 1875, the majority begged to differ. That 1875 decision explains that the criminal statute requires, quote, acting with the view of enabling another to elude punishment, end quote. And according to the Fourth Circuit, that is, quote, synonymous with acting with a specific intent, end quote. According to the Fourth Circuit, the Virginia Model Penal Code and jury instructions support this conclusion. That makes Mr. Pugin removable. Chief Judge Gregory dissented in an opinion just as long in details as the majority's, which I will dive into deeply if the Fourth Circuit goes and bonk. Let's continue, shall we? First, I remain flummoxed, as I have so often stated on the podcast, why we're talking Chevron deference at all, where the BIA's Valenzuela Garado II decision was vacated by the Ninth Circuit on direct petition for review. It's not that the Ninth Circuit decided simply not to defer to the BIA's decision, an action that would have little effect on what the Fourth Circuit decides to do with the decision. But instead, the Ninth Circuit vacated the BIA's decision because the matter arose in the Ninth Circuit. Put another way, Valenzuela Guerrero II shouldn't exist. So what is the Fourth Circuit deferring to? No judge ever talks about this, so I'm probably wrong, but I don't see why, so I'm going to keep saying it. Assuming Chevron deference is the proper arena and reviewing my notes from episode 15, it seems like the main dispute here between the Ninth and the Fourth Circuit is that the Ninth Circuit believes section 101A43S unambiguous based on a different reading of how obstructing justice was understood when Congress passed the aggravated felony statute in 1996. The Ninth Circuit believes, as the BIA did before its Valenzuela Guerrero decisions, that section 101A43S requires a nexus to a pending criminal proceeding, not merely a foreseeable future one. Ripe for certiorari to the Supreme Court? 
quite the Chevron deference case as well, and there are justices who seem ready to dispense with Chevron if they don't just do so this term. I like the odds. Finally worth noting, some states like California have amended their misdemeanor statutes so as never to permit a sentence to a term of imprisonment of at least one year. In California, for example, the maximum sentence for misdemeanors, as I understand it, is now 364 days in prison. This change of one day can make all the difference if the removability statute alleged requires a sentence to imprisonment of at least one year, and it would have made all the difference for Mr. Pugin. If Mr. Pugin had been convicted now, in California, for misdemeanor accessory after the fact to a felony, he wouldn't have lost his green card. But he was convicted in Virginia, and so he will be removed. And that is Pugin v. Garland. That was a lot, huh? Next up is Kumar v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on November 30th, 2021. This case is about credibility. Mr. Kumar is from Punjab, India, and from the, quote, scheduled caste, end quote, considered to be one of the castes of, quote, lower social standing, end quote. He joined the Bahujan Samaj Party, or BSP, in 2007, quote, because of the party's opposition to the caste system, end quote. Knowing nothing else about the BSP, I can sympathize. He became a leader of the BSP in his village and, as a result, testified he was beaten four times by police and opposition political parties. Among other harms, his attackers, quote, stripped him naked, beat him with wooden batons, and subjected him to electric shocks, end quote, and threatened to murder him. He suffered escalating attacks and threats and fled to the United States, where upon discovery, he passed his credible fear interview and was placed in removal proceedings. The IJ and the BIA denied relief and protection, based on an adverse credibility finding that relied on four factors. But the Ninth Circuit did not believe the record supported that finding, and so remanded. First, the IJ and the BIA believed Mr. Kumar inconsistent when he, quote, stated during the credible fear interview that he was released from police custody without his family paying a bribe, but two years later, he testified to the IJ that his family did pay a bribe, end quote. Also, it seems that Mr. Kumar might have expanded upon his injuries a bit in court as compared to his application and credible fear interview. However, Ninth Circuit case law, quote, cautions against relying too heavily on inconsistencies that could be attributable to simple human error or reluctance, end quote. This was particularly the case here, where the credible fear interviewer asked ambiguous questions, and in any event, as always, quote, the record of this interview are notes, and not a verbatim transcript, end quote. Now true, said the Ninth Circuit, this is a discrepancy and the IJ was entitled to give it some weight. But the IJ was not entitled to believe inconsistent, for example, Mr. Kumar's testimony that he was beaten all over his body simply because his asylum application said he was beaten in his arms and legs. That's not an inconsistency. So moving on. The IJ and the BIA also relied upon a letter from a BSP leader describing Mr. Kumar's role in the party and the attacks. Quote, the IJ concluded that the letter called into question Kumar's credibility because it did not mention a fourth incident of torture to which Kumar testified, and because the letter noted that Kumar's father is a leading member of the political party, while Kumar did not mention this fact until he was asked about it, end quote. But simply put, that's not inconsistent. And it's certainly not a material omission, as the BIA seemed to believe. 
a letter can corroborate a claim without corroborating every single aspect of everything that happened to a non-citizen in his or her home country. Third, then, the Ninth Circuit held that the IJ and BIA erred when they speculated that Mr. Kumar's testimony was implausible because they would have expected that he would have received more injuries than he testified to following a 30-minute beating. But it did take him 15 days to recover from the attack, and in any event, the BIA and IJ improperly speculated without basing their speculation on any evidence. Finally, the IJ believed Mr. Kumar's demeanor in court indicated that he was, quote, reciting a rehearsed story rather than relating incidents that he had personally experienced, end quote. And not only are IJs allowed to rely on demeanor findings, but they're pretty hard to overcome on a written transcript, as occurs on appeal. So the Ninth Circuit deferred to that demeanor finding. And so to summarize, the Ninth Circuit did not disturb like one and a half out of four reasons for the adverse credibility finding, which would in many cases mean that Mr. Kumar loses. But not anymore. Following the Ninth Circuit's in banc decision in Alam v. Garland, discussed on episode 72 of the podcast, a week that, upon review, had ten very complex cases that gives me hives just looking at. Before Alam, it used to be the case that the court would affirm an adverse credibility finding, quote, so long as one of the identified grounds was supported by substantial evidence and went to the heart of the claim, end quote. This was called the single factor rule, which Alam vacated, because following the Real ID Act, courts must, quote, affirm credibility findings only when they are supported by the totality of circumstances, end quote, not just a single factor, no matter how central that factor is to the claim. After Alam, and while, quote, falsehoods and fabrications weigh particularly heavily, end quote, omissions and additions don't, at least not necessarily. In the end, adverse credibility requires a, quote, totality of the circumstances, end quote, analysis, and the two or three factors that the IJ and BIA erred in relying upon here didn't pass this new test post-Alam. So the court remanded the case for a new analysis from the BIA. Congratulations, Pardeep S. Grewal, for petitioner. Just to continue. A fairly specific decision, as adverse credibility so often is. But underlying those facts is a pretty big indicator. The Ninth Circuit's en banc alarm decision appears to have upended adverse credibility in the Ninth Circuit. Even if, as occurred here, some of the adverse credibility bases relied upon were correct, errors on other bases may constitute grounds to remand everything, particularly if stark enough. And that is because now, the focus is on the totality of circumstances for adverse credibility. Once one of the bases is proven to be unsupported, that totality of circumstances relied upon the IJ and the BIA necessarily has been altered, because the erroneous circumstances been removed. This decision is definitely worth reading in the Ninth Circuit as you craft your adverse credibility appeals and petitions for review. And that is Kumar v. Garland. Turning to back-to-back from the Tenth Circuit, we have Villegas Castro v. Garland, published on December 2nd, 2021. This decision is about a few things, but primarily, it's about an immigration judge's authority following remand, an issue that I always enjoy. Mr. Villegas Castro is from Mexico and entered the United States unlawfully. 
He apparently was in the United States for at least 10 years before being placed in removal proceedings, and in court, he applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AB, and in the alternative, asylum and related relief. The immigration judge granted cancellation and denied asylum, which would then get Mr. Villegas Castro a green card once the cancellation backlog became current for him, probably in a couple of years. But DHS appealed the cancellation of removal grant to the BIA. On appeal, the BIA vacated the grant and remanded. But on remand, the IJ permitted Mr. Villegas Castro to file a new asylum application and then granted it. DHS appealed that, and the BIA overturned again, this time on asylum, essentially holding that the IJ didn't have authority to accept the new asylum application and grant it. The Tenth Circuit did not agree. It's a bit complicated. The IJ had considered that second asylum application based on a finding that a material change in country conditions had occurred during the appeal, and so now a new asylum application could be filed. Maybe that was proper and maybe it wasn't. But on appeal the second time, the BIA treated that asylum application and then rejected it as merely an amendment to the first application, not an entirely new application. And whether an amendment to an asylum application can be considered does not rise or fall on whether a material change in country conditions has occurred. It's just an amendment to an already pending asylum application. So because the BIA treated it like that, the Tenth Circuit did as well, and held, contrary to the BIA, that Mr. Villegas Castro could indeed amend his asylum application on remand, even though he never appealed the first denial of asylum. Remember, only DHS appealed, and DHS only appealed the grant of cancellation that first time. No matter. Under long-standing BIA precedent, quote, when remanding, the BIA divests itself of jurisdiction of that case, and the remand is effective for consideration of any and all matters that the immigration judge deems appropriate, end quote. The BIA can only limit the IJ's authority on remand if the BIA does so expressly in its remand order. For instance, by saying here, if it wanted to, that the IJ may only reevaluate cancellation of removal and nothing else. But the BIA did not make that limitation here. It said only, as it so often does, that the case was remanded, quote, for further proceedings consistent with the foregoing opinion and for the entry of a new decision, end quote. That was merely a general remand, meaning that the IJ was free to consider amendments to the asylum application and Mr. Villegas Castro's eligibility. Take note, y'all. It would appear that this standard language used by the BIA to remand most of its decisions means that an IJ can consider anything and everything on remand. And according to this decision, eight circuits agree. The BIA also overturned the IJ's asylum grant on the merits, finding that Mr. Villegas Castro's conviction for sexual battery was a particularly serious crime that barred him from asylum. This too was wrong, according to the Tenth Circuit. Or, well, it wasn't exactly right. Because the conviction isn't an aggravated felony, matter of NAM governs the analysis, which is a multi-factor analysis that involves fact-heavy considerations. The IJ considered the facts of the crime, as matter of NAM requires, believing Mr. Villegas Castro's testimony over a probable cause criminal affidavit, and determined that the crime wasn't a particularly serious crime. But the BIA disagreed, and weighed the affidavit over Mr. Villegas Castro's testimony because it appears to have deemed Mr. Villegas Castro not very credible. This the BIA cannot do, 
because it reviews IJ fact findings such as credibility for clear error. The BIA can't overturn an IJ's fact finding like this just because it would have weighed the evidence differently. That's exactly what the BIA did here, so the BIA erred. Finally, the BIA made a mistake by denying, simply on its own, Mr. Villegas Castro's applications for withholding of removal under the INA and protection under the Convention Against Torture. And this was error because the BIA relied on the mistakes just discussed. So the Tenth Circuit remanded. Confusing case, but a win nonetheless. Congratulations, Harry Larson, which as the decision states, is formally of Quinn Emanuel, with Andrew H. Shapiro of Quinn Emanuel and Karen Zweck and Tanya Linares-Garcia of the National Immigrant Justice Center on brief. And that is Viegas Castro v. Garland. Next up from the Tenth Circuit is Durango Delgado v. Garland, also published on December 2, 2021. This case is about motions to reopen and reinstatement. Mr. Durango Delgado has lived in the United States since being brought here in 1977, at seven years old. He became an LPR in 1980, but never became a U.S. citizen, as so often tragically is the case on the podcast. In 1997, he was convicted of burglary, and in 2015, he pled guilty to felony aggravated animal cruelty in Colorado, giving him two crimes involving moral turpitude and therefore making him removable. His criminal attorney never advised him that he might be removed for this second offense in 2015. Perhaps understandable because, again, it would have required a criminal attorney to know about the prior burglary conviction, know that it was a CIMT, know that aggravated animal cruelty is a CIMT, and know that two or more CIMTs make an LPR removable. In removal proceedings, Mr. Durango Delgado collaterally sought post-conviction relief in Colorado State Court of that 2015 conviction based on the alleged ineffective assistance of counsel he received because he was not warned of the immigration consequences before he pled guilty. But the immigration judge didn't give Mr. Durango Delgado time for that process to play itself out. The IJ moved the case forward, denied Mr. Durango Delgado's only pending application in removal proceedings for LPR cancellation of removal, and ordered him removed to Mexico. Mr. Durango Delgado did not appeal to the BIA. I don't know why. Perhaps he was detained and was sick of being in prison. And he was physically removed to Mexico in 2017, after 40 years in the United States. A year later, the Colorado State Court vacated the conviction based on Mr. Durango Delgado having received ineffective assistance of counsel. After all, by the time of his 2015 plea, the Supreme Court's Padilla decision had made quite clear that a failure to inform a non-citizen of the possibility of removal before a guilty plea violates that non-citizen's Sixth Amendment right to counsel. So technically, Mr. Durango Delgado is no longer removable but he's already been removed to Mexico pursuant to a final order of removal. So he did the only thing he could, and filed a motion to reopen in January of 2019. The immigration judge denied it. Motions to reopen must normally be filed within 90 days unless an IJ decides to equitably toll that deadline, and here, the IJ found Mr. Durango Delgado hadn't filed his motion with sufficient diligence from Mexico to warrant equitable tolling. In any event, so the IJ reasoned, the state of Colorado may have vacated the animal cruelty conviction, but it had also reinstated the criminal charge, so there was a charge still pending. The BIA affirmed. 
Honestly, I don't know. That equitable tolling finding might not have survived petition for review in light of everything Mr. Durango Delgado seems to have gone through up to this point and his diligence. But in early 2019, after denial of his motion to reopen, Mr. Durango Delgado re-entered the U.S. unlawfully. That's a big problem, because in addition to being an illegal thing to do, when DHS learned about this, it reinstated the prior removal order. Mr. Durango Delgado remained in the U.S. in withholding-only proceedings, which an IJ eventually denied, and during that time, he filed a second motion to reopen, which is what's at issue here. By that time, December 2019, Mr. Durango Delgado had pled guilty to misdemeanor animal cruelty in Colorado, which apparently is not a CIMT. So now, Mr. Durango Delgado hasn't been convicted of two or more CIMTs, meaning that if he had still had LPR status, he wouldn't be removable. But that first removal order still stands, so he is removable. Hence the need for a second motion to reopen. Ah, immigration. And now Mr. Durango Delgado had an even bigger problem. INA Section 241A5 bars a non-citizen from reopening their final order of removal once DHS has reinstated it upon their unlawful re-entry. So the IJ and the BIA denied this second motion to reopen. And the Tenth Circuit affirmed. Because the statute says so. INA Section 241A5 states that under these exact circumstances, a final order of removal, quote, is not subject to being reopened or reviewed, end quote. And really, Mr. Durango Delgado and his counsel realized this, which is why they argued that the statute should not apply here because doing so would be a, quote, gross miscarriage of justice, end quote. But the Tenth Circuit rejected that. The Tenth Circuit recognized that the Third, Fifth, and Ninth Circuits will permit a challenge to an underlying removal order or for a non-citizen to attack it collaterally based on a showing that enforcement would cause a gross miscarriage of justice and that if in those circuits, Mr. Durango Delgado may have had a claim. But the Sixth Circuit in Sanchez-Gonzalez v. Garland, and the Eighth Circuit in Gutierrez-Gutierrez v. Garland, episodes 64 and 48 of the podcast, respectively, have disagreed, and the Tenth Circuit agrees with those circuits. The statute that bars motions to reopen upon reinstatement is clear to the Tenth Circuit, and that's the end of the story there is no exception. Finally, the Tenth Circuit rejected Mr. Durango Delgado's argument that as applied, INA Section 241A5 impermissibly divested him of his lawful right to file a motion to reopen. Yes, it does do that, said the Tenth Circuit, but only if he re-enters illegally. That forfeits his right and is a lawful penalty for Congress to impose. Mr. Durango Delgado, therefore, lost his case, and it would appear will be removed. One more interesting thing. Mr. Durango Delgado also asked the Tenth Circuit to grant him non-pro-tunk relief, Latin for now for then. According to Mr. Durango Delgado, the Tenth Circuit could and should grant him, quote, relief from the date of the IJ's wrongful denial of his first motion to reopen. And because that denial preceded his illegal reentry, Section 241A5 would not apply, end quote. That's a lot of winding back of the clock, and the Tenth Circuit seems to be sympathetic to it, stating that indeed, quote, non-pro-tunk is an equitable remedy that courts have applied in immigration proceedings. But not here, because as a remedy in equity, quote, unclean hands can bar such relief, end quote. 
i.e. Mr. Tarangle Delgado's unlawful re-entry. Good to know that the argument will be entertained in other cases, though. And that is Tarango Delgado v. Garland. Finally, we come to a decision that I am not overly giddy about, Spagnol Bastos v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on December 3rd, 2021. This case is about deficient NTAs and no-notice motions to reopen. Mr. Spagnol Bastos is from Brazil and entered the United States without authorization in or around the year 2000. He was apprehended by immigration authorities and served with a notice to appear. The NTA lacked the date and time of the first removal hearing. Immigration officials released Mr. Spagnol Bastos from detention shortly thereafter, and apparently he told officials orally that he'd be residing at a certain address in New York. An immigration official filed notice with the immigration court that the New York address would be Mr. Spagnol Bastos's address, and the immigration court eventually sent a hearing notice to that address. But the notice was returned to the immigration court by USPS as, quote, unclaimed, end quote. And when Mr. Spagnol Bastos did not appear for his hearing, the IJ ordered him removed in absentia. Eighteen years later, Mr. Spagnol Bastos filed a motion to reopen, alleging that he received deficient notice, which would then excuse him from missing his hearing and would thereby permit him to return to removal proceedings and apply for relief. There is no time limit on such motions so long as the non-citizen can show that he received defective notice. Mr. Spagnol Bastos included an affidavit with his motion, apparently sworn under penalty of perjury, that the address he provided immigration officials in 2000 was slightly different than the one that the immigration officials provided to the immigration court, an address in New York that he lived at for many years after his release from immigration custody. And reviewing the two addresses side by side, if true, it totally explains why Mr. Spagnol Bastos never received hearing notice, because the first address that DHS provided to the immigration court makes no sense. For example, while the two addresses are kind of similar, the immigration officers in 2000 wrote that the city was in Manhayon, which quite frankly is clearly a mistaken transcription of Manhattan, the city where Mr. Spagnol Bastos actually lived. But the immigration judge denied the motion to reopen, believing Mr. Spagnol Bastos's sworn affidavit, quote, untrustworthy. By the time of the appeal to the BIA, the Supreme Court had issued Pereira v. Sessions, and so, Mr. Spagnol Bastos argued that additionally, proceedings should be reopened because, due to the defective NTA, he was now eligible for non-LPR cancellation of removal all these years later. The BIA affirmed the IJ. And the Fifth Circuit affirmed the BIA. First, the address issue. Really, the Fifth Circuit simply held that the IJ's decision not to believe Mr. Spagnol Bastos' affidavit was supported by substantial evidence. The court didn't really explain why, and no one appears to acknowledge that, even using the defective address DHS provided to the court in 2000, the zip code was still 10029, which is in Manhattan. So DHS clearly was mistaken, because again, the city used by DHS with that zip code is the make-believe city of Manhayon which coincidentally has the same zip code as Manhattan. Just saying. The Fifth Circuit then turned to the cancellation of removal argument and rejected it. Mr. Spagnobastos argued that following Pereira, his continuous physical presence did not stop upon service of the deficient NTA, and that so now, 20 years later, he has the 10 years continuous physical presence required of non-LPR cancellation of removal. Presumably, he also has a qualifying relative who will suffer exceptional and extremely unusual hardship should he be removed, 
and so he asked the court to reopen his case so he could apply. But the Fifth Circuit affirmed the BIA's rejection of this argument only because it held that Mr. Spagnol Bastos waived it by failing to adequately argue it in his opening brief before the court. Now, he failed to adequately argue it because at the time of his opening brief, Fifth Circuit precedent foreclosed the argument. Ms. Chavez hadn't been issued yet, and under Fifth Circuit precedent, a notice of hearing stopped the accrual of unlawful presence. But that got vacated by Ms. Chavez, and so after Ms. Chavez, Mr. Spagno Bastos's attorneys provided supplemental argument, but the Fifth Circuit deemed it waived. Harsh stuff. But just to be clear, the Fifth Circuit did not adjudicate the substance of the argument, an argument similar to the argument accepted by the Ninth Circuit in Cantor v. Garland, discussed on episode 80 of the podcast. So there's not a technical circuit split. So there will be no gong. Anyway, Mr. Spagnol Bastos's case will not be reopened. But I mean... If you're like me, the second you saw the holding, you stood up in your chair and said, what about Rodriguez v. Garland, discussed on episode 75 of the podcast. Also, if you're like me, you cite to podcast episodes whenever you can, out loud, no matter the context. And yes, what about Rodriguez? As I read the case and as IJs in Texas have been applying it, an in absentia motion to reopen must be granted when, like here, the NTA lacks the information required of INA section 239A. And that is because in Rodriguez, the Fifth Circuit stated that it didn't matter to its analysis whether Mr. Rodriguez could overcome the presumption that he had received notice of his hearing. All that mattered was that the NTA was deficient. Well, in this case, it appears that Mr. Spagnol Bastos may not have made that exact argument. I'm not entirely sure, and it appears that he may have only cited to Rodriguez in support of his argument that he was now cancellation eligible. Again, I could be wrong. But regardless, the Fifth Circuit recognizes the tension with Rodriguez, stating in a footnote that, quote, Mr. Spagnol Bastos's reliance on Rodriguez is misplaced, because unlike Spagnol Bastos, Rodriguez provided immigration authorities with a viable mailing address and therefore did not forfeit his right to notice, end quote, under INA section 240b5c. That is, it would appear that this panel reads Rodriguez as only requiring reopening of an in absentia removal order based on a deficient NTA if, notwithstanding the deficient NTA, the non-citizen can also prove that he provided DHS with the correct address. The panel does not quote anything from Rodriguez to so distinguish Rodriguez, and personally, it's not how I read Rodriguez. It doesn't make sense to me, and if I'm a betting man, this footnote might be the reason the panel decided to publish this decision. Here we remain until the next decision. And that is Spagnol Bastos v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, 
email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.